1: Ester's in the middle, Torres is trying to find him, it's broken for Fabricas. Hello, big interview listeners and socios, and welcome to World Cup 2010 Revista, our mini-series shadowing Spain's run to the World Cup final in South Africa 10 years ago. It's semi-final day. Spain versus Germany. Graham Hunter is on the line from Barcelona, and I thought we might start by getting away from Spain for a bit. In the last episode, we looked at their opposition research team, so let's do a bit of opposition research of our own and look at Germany's side at this tournament. So Spain and Germany met in the final of Euro 2008, previous tournament, which finished 1-0 to Spain. Since then, both had cruised through qualifying with zero defeats between them. Both of them got themselves into a bit of bother in the group stages. Both needed a win from their final game. Germany got it against Ghana, 1-0. But Graham, in the knockouts, 4-1 versus England in the round of 16, Four nil versus Diego Maradona's Argentina. If you had been recruited by Paco Jimenez to put together a dossier on Spain's semi-final opponents, where would you begin? <laughs>
0: I think I'd have first of all I'd have said in in true spitting images uh, style, I don't want the job, which uh, L- L- Larry Speak, the spokesman for Ronald Reagan, used to say. Um, I I suppose. The first thing to point out was that Joachim Lowe had begun, in my opinion, to turn... It wasn't... Anybody who'd done that analysis and simply said, this is yet another German side, which is gathering momentum in a tournament, which is kind of um, terminator unbeatable. You can beat them, you can smash them, you can break an arm off and they will regenerate and they will still beat you. I would have said that that was different. At this stage, I think Manuel Neuer was 24, 25. There was a terrible tragedy in that his position as undisputed number one um, for Die Mannschaft was partly because Robert Enke had uh, killed himself the previous November and and Robert Enke at that stage had been serious competition for Manuel Neuer and... A terrible loss to all the, those who loved him. And one of the moments I think that football began to take depression, take silence of athletic men unable to share things very seriously. Nonetheless, you know, we we lost Robert Inka. I, I'd met him. Ronnie Reng, my friend, had written the award-winning book about him. Ronnie had phoned me on my birthday night when I was working in Greece in tears. I mean, floods of inconsolable tears about the loss of Robert Enke. So I suppose, you know, when it comes to the World Cup, only November to now July is nine months later, it would be wrong not to to point out that there there would have been a, a different composition to Germany's goalkeeping staff, at least at that tournament. But Neuer is on form and... Joachim Lowe had risked, it sounds odd now, because I, I think Milisav Klosser still has the all-time goal-scoring record in World Cup Finals. Klosser has been picked, as has Paul Lee, Paul Lee, uh, Lucas Podolsky, by Jogi Low because, like Aragonese believed in Villa over Raul, Jogi Low believes in these footballers for their personality, for their components and how they fit his his brand of football. Maybe Germany did just lack an absolute outright cutting edge. But in my humble opinion, they'd matured. I thought that they were a better side um, than they were in Euro 2008. Um, We've spoken to players in our interview series, including Per Mertesacker, about 2008. I think there's a general feeling within the German camp that in the Euros, that was the tournament where they were typically German and got to a final probably when it was a divided camp. And over the the two years, that had changed, Neil. So I think when the the scouting report came, I, I think there would have been a, an emphasis that if you keep the ball away from them, as Spain were prone to do anyway it was likely that that would hurt them exponentially because there wasn't an outright guy who was going to say one penalty box chance and that's me. Patently, this was a side that if you let them get on top of you, they could punish you. They did so against England. Um, the England game, I can't remember if they, in the intro you mentioned the fact that Lampard's goal was patently in, didn't get given. And, and I've I've seen subsequent arguments from people who are respectable that that was the turning point that England were going to be on their way back into the game. But on that day, they were outplayed. They didn't compete properly. And so uh, Germany, the message in the briefing would have been, um, don't expect that they'll be easy to score against. Definitely don't let them dominate you. But if you keep the ball off them, then they may become a little bit frustrated because they, they are not one of the all-time great German sides. I think that's a fair briefing, Neil.
1: I mean, you talked about a lack of Cutting edge, and it's funny when you're talking about close to the World Cup's leading goal scorer to describe it that way. But the fact of the matter is that he, he never really had an elite, elite club career. But the one guy who has had that kind of career and who was also emerging with players like Neuer and Erzo in this generation was Thomas Muller, who had scored twice against England the 3 1 4 1 goals. And then he scored the first goal in the 4 0 demolition of Argentina. He'd go on to score against Uruguay in the third place playoff, wouldn't he? Yeah, he's he. In fact,
0: I think he, I think he opens the scoring in that game.
1: Well, there's a reason that he's not going to be in your scouting dossier for the semi final.
0: What has he got? He's got two things that probably, in, in my view, make him stand out a little bit. Number one, he's extreme. I think he's pretty erratic. Um, I think he's a guy who positionally has struggled a little bit to work out um, where, he's best, where he's best deployed. Um, and also he's tempestuous he's a live wire who's constantly he, he likes to niggle in the ear of his opponents tease his fellow players he'll erupt in little um, flashes of, of temper too and Muller's a smart guy Muller's a really interesting guy but you're talking about the fact that he's what suspended for this match yeah I remember getting a little bit Huffy about this I remember complaining about this And thinking that it was It was probably an unfair booking And a a bittersweet ending To what had been a very good performance But them's them's the breaks Them's the rules And it did probably add to their toothlessness Because although you wouldn't define him As an outright uh, goal scorer He was on form He was terrifically quick That's probably another thing That had troubled Spain over this, this tournament If they didn't particularly like being
1: run at and, and that's Muller's trademark. So that's the problems that face Spain. On the pitch, off the pitch, their support was being reinforced by squadrons of supporters who were uh, invading South Africa or trying to from Spain. So before we get into the game, a little, um, I want to say comic, I think it's a tragic comic. aside, is that not everybody who thought they were going to watch this game in person managed to do so. Um... One guy that we've mentioned before did but many did not and going back through the book you wrote about the three tournaments that Spain won in a row I could scarcely believe the reason. Well, the the first thing to say is we're going back to Durban, eh?
0: The win over Paraguay guarantees that Spain are going back to the seaside the Indian Ocean. They're going back to the stadium where they open the tournament and they're beaten by Switzerland. Typically... And and in this case, it's just luck. But, you know, for those who like towels on the sun loungers jokes, Germany have got the better hotel. And Spain have got a, a much lesser hotel. So it seems to auger badly. And then the augers increase because whether you want to call them fair weather fans or whether you want to call them... Friends and family who who didn't have the money to to take a punt and say we're going with Spain all the way in, in South Africa, whether they come home in the group or the quarters or whatever, we're going to be out there. We're going to be available in case it goes well. So suddenly there's this deluge of people who are like, bloody hell, we're in the semi-final, first time ever. And irrespective of the fact that it's Germany or not and who might be favourites, Spain are European champions, and there is this enormous surge of offers in Spain about like fly in and out for the day. Take a forty-eight hour trip. That there are immensely available packages to go in and out for the minimum of time, or go and stay for the final shoot to get through. And therefore, there's a deluge of people wanting to fly, whatever it is, the twelve and a bit hours from Spain down to Durban. But what happens is that Durban isn't particularly ready. Never mind Roy Keane and the prawn sandwich brigade. This is suddenly, Durban is, for many people, is, is it's the place to be. So what happens is that Durban Airport isn't simply oversubscribed with airliner after airliner of fans from Germany and Spain, but also football tourists trying to flock in. It is literally at its out, outside edge for air traffic control, use of space, um, it's a, it's absolute limit in terms of landing strip space because the, the planes are now pouring in over and above scheduled flights. The package flights or the um, charter flights are are pushing this, this friendly little airport to its extremes. And then comes the Coup de Grasse. What happens is, and I list them here, obviously the Queen of Spain wants to fly in, Jacob Zuma. Um, leading black politician in South Africa, Leo DiCaprio, Paris Hilton, but score after score of multimillionaire wants to fly into Durban in private jets. When they start to land, Durban Airport gets chock-a-block and they begin to say, we're not moving because what's meant to happen is that about 60 kilometres away, the, the jets, the, pri- the the fleet of private jets that come in are supposed to land in the local airport near the stadium and then drop off their multi-millionaire passengers, get up in the air and hop 60 kilometres away to Durban International Airport. But what happens is that the, air, the aircraft pilots are told by the rich people, I want you waiting right here. And the pilots basically just say, we're not moving. We're just staying, we're parking where we are. It's like a, a traffic warden coming along and saying, well, I'm going to give you a ticket. that, fine. I don't care Uh, lovely Rita you do your worst so what what starts to happen is that internally first of all there's constipation whereby flights to Durban from Cape Town or Joburg or Pretoria or wherever it might be are told not to take off and then international flights the message gets back to people who are expected to be in for the game you can't come it's just absolute chaos and one man I mean, there should be a cartoon series. There should definitely be some sort of heroic cartoon series about this man, because Manolo El Del Bombo, who we explained, is this sixty-one-year-old man-child, who's followed Spain to every tournament, every single tournament since 1982. Never missed a competitive match. Um, finishes the Paraguay match, diagnosed with pneumonia, and he's a big, burly, slightly overweight guy, sixty-one emotionally all over the place and he's, he's been flown home and he's been part of the spanish national team charter the spanish federation charter so he's been taken home because his life seems to be at some risk because pneumonia at that age for that kind of guy who's not fit at all can definitely be vaped as they say in the tour on his death can be fatal he touches down gets this religious vision that spain can't win it without him takes a couple of aspirin's walks across the tarmac <laughs> gets on the next flight back from spain to durban and somehow i don't know it's the image in my mind is like rugby players trying to trap a wet pig and the pig just keeps slipping out of their grasp and oinking his way to freedom Manolo El Del Bombo, I don't know what flight it was or how he does it, amidst all the chaos, he he manages to land just about in time for the game, just about, and commandeer some vehicle to take him through what is then a logjam of cars between this local airport and uh, Moses Mabika, right next to the Durban Sharks uh, rugby ground, and he nearly gets there. So the build up to the game is odd, it's possibly inauspicious feeling but the airwaves the newspapers are absolutely jam packed with this scandal that Durban is hosting a World Cup final in soccer for the first time ever and it's utter chaos in the airport and there's anger at the pilots of these private little cute Learjets that sit there as if it's a Learjet annual general meeting on the tarmac, you know what I mean? And it's funny as en- it's funny as anything, but Manolo gets through.
1: Okay, match day in Durban, the Moses Mabida Stadium. Special day for the Spaniards. Anything? Anything in particular to add for the date of July the seventh for the Spanish players? Yeah, there is,
0: a, and it it doesn't occur to me at the time. But the the Festival of San Fermín, which is w- whether you hate the running of the bulls or you love it and it's it's patently absolutely iconic it's also a festival of of sparkle of color of dress of culture and all year long um those who love going up to pamplona sing the the San Fermin song which is related to the calendar so it goes de, enero, dos de febrero tres de marzo cuatro abril, cinco de mayo seis de junio siete de julio san fermin and let like, you don't have to have spanish to to guess that that's the the 1st of january 2nd of february all that kind of and how i got the numbers and the months in the right order is beyond me and you before you say anything and it's, it's, yeah, it's a, for, for those who are from that neck of the woods, including, for example, Fernando Giorente, it's a really big thing. And subsequently, I think at 2012, I, I'm not party to them, I don't think, dressing up, because the, the uniform is white trousers, white shirt, and a red neckerchief uh, bandana thing, uh, worn tied at the front or tied at the back, and, and the little V down of red handkerchief around the front. And it's a really big thing. I I think Del Bosque has some sort of familial, I think his brother was very into San Fermin. So Del Bosque, albeit that he's born in Salamanca, which is not part of uh, um, Pamplona or Navarra. It, there are a number of players who are into it. And uh, I suppose it's symbolic. And sometimes players believe in things like that, that it's a, that this is a good date. Um, but nonetheless, there, there's, in my opinion, the, the thing rather than the day or the celebrations or culture, and we've had them not just San Fermín, we've had them we've had Juan Capdevilla, Juan Cattavilla jumping over bonfires with Juan Mata and and Sergio Ramos. Do you know what struck me most, Neil? Two two probably two things. One, because we travel with them, this is the most relaxed I've seen them. They've gone through games whereby it's easier on Duras but they've made a little bit of a fist of it, or it's been really tough, like Switzerland, like Chile, like Paraguay. I put Portugal slightly aside because I think they quite enjoyed that game. And they're looking forward to... It's like a twin meeting another twin after a lifetime separation. They fundamentally believe that A, they're a little bit better than Germany, but B, that Germany will come out and play. And they make quite a noise about this. So in, in the day of July 7th, leading up to the match, there's a jauntiness, even with the rooms being burgled and so on and so forth, there's a feeling about, like, win, lose, or draw, we're going to enjoy tonight.
1: So listen, let's go through the lineups before we get into the, the run of play. Germany, Neuer, Lam, Friedrich, Mertesacker, Boateng, Kidera, Schweinsteiger, Trukowski. Urzel, Podolski, and closer Spain. Casillas, Ramos, Piquet, Puyo, Captavia, Busquets, and Alonso, Iniesta, Xavi, and Pedro Villa as the, uh, the tip of the spear. So the one change there is Fernando Torres onto the bench and Pedro into the starting 11. So let's, um, let's talk about this. This was a big call that Delboski had to make, not just to drop Torres, his match winner in the 08 final against Germany, but to choose Pedro ahead of the other options, such as um, Jesus Navas or David Silva, in that position um, outside of Xavi. So what did you think going into the game? I mean, you're right that Torres kind of knew the axe was coming. I want to know why that was. And also, why do you think Del Bosque chose Pedro ahead of the other guys?
0: He talked about it. He's an extraordinary guy, Torres. Generally, that tournament, there was... A sufficient degree of access That you've got a lot of information About the squad So on a given day When it's a media day which, which the majority of the days Of some media component You might get as many As six players talking Now as the days go on That accumulates Into quite a lot of Aggregated knowledge About who's happy Who's got a twinge Who's got a moan Who's told some funny anecdotes And, and Torres is aware That he's done okay but then, Neil, we get to watch training. And, and two two things from training probably stand out across uh, certainly the last two tournaments that they win, because I don't think Mata goes to 2008. Across the, the trainings of 2010 and 2012, Juan Mata, currently of Manchester United, is a buzz bomb. Physically, in, in 2012, he comes there knackered, absolutely knackered, but scores goals repeatedly, gets away from Marker, scores, 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 and gets, I mean, I, I can't remember if he gets even a minute at the World Cup. He gets very few minutes in 2012, comes on and scores in the final. But by that time, it had almost reached the levels of being embarrassing. What else can you do in training, Neil? I ask you. Pedro features in this discussion too, because Pedro has repeatedly in training done the drills really well, but he's looked explosively fast. You know that you know that Pedro when he looks like a little buzz bomb, when he bursts away with his knees half bent and he sprints, it's it's like little arms pumping. He's got a knot to sixty. Apart from being quick over a medium distance and a long distance, his knot to sixty is very, very he accelerates really quickly from a standing start. And he's also got this thing about you see this lesson training. Many games you do see it, but in exercises and drills, no. He's just got this innate understanding about when to come inside, when to stretch the pitch, when to hug the touchline, when to commit his full-back, based on the Barcelona philosophy, which is e- extremely vital to Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta. So there's a sound of a click w- when he's picked. And Torres, for all the, the, the fact that he's been increasingly sharp, and has made openings, and has worked diligently, the goals don't necessarily look as if they're coming. And when Pedro comes on against Paraguay, his positioning, never mind the fact that it's his shot that goes off the post and via finishes, his movement and his positioning make him look not only like a player in explosive form, but a player with more pace than Fernando Torres, and a player who clicks immediately, more than anybody else that's sitting on the bench, with Xavi and Iesta and Busquets. And they're the reasons, I think, principally, that when Del Bosque looks at Germany and he looks at the possibility of quick fullbacks um, from them playing out from the back, which Jogi Lowe wants to do, the degree to which you've got to press and the degree to which you have to then break really quickly and intelligently when you win the ball back deep in your own half... Pedro just seemed to fit a number of different boxes that needed ticking before the Germany semi-final. I think.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Lamb already and um, maybe that's the matchup that was at the forefront of Del Bosque's mind was who can I use that is best positioned to pin Lamb back and to track Lamb when he does go. He's the best player, Neil. I don't think you'd argue with me that as as as
0: much as the talent that you named in the starting 11 for Jogi Lowe's side... Lamb remains not only their their leader, but probably only in competition with Schweini. Ozil is not at his mature peak then. Lamb is their best player, uh, outfield player, you know, Neuer's in the mix. And therefore, as you say, if you can test him, if you can pin him back, if you can stop him from doing damage and then ask him questions in behind, then perfect.
1: Quick answer, who wins um, a foot race between... Pedro and Navas at their peak. Navas. Navas, it depends over the distances. You know, if, if you
0: want to make a, a 5, 10, 15 metre sprint, it's extraordinarily tight. Over over a longer distance, and, and to my memory, Pedro has only ever once been asked to play a wing-back role, whereas Navas has been asked to do so perpetually for City, then Spain, and now Sevilla. And that tells you who over sixty seventy meters there there are there are few i think there are very very few who even even now probably compete with Jesus Navas who who ran over the the swimming pool in Poch. we've I've talked a lot about how Spartan things were at poch but and they were but the, the the there was a swimming pool there it, I think it was unheated. So in wintertime, nobody went in. And it had one of these blue kind of slightly floating tarpaulins over. And it was secured, but not tied tight. And as they went that little trek from each of their little dormitories to to breakfast or lunch or whatever, they would pass the swimming pool. <laughs> and went a little run over the top of the tarpaulin. Because he reckoned like the, what is it, the wall of death where you do the the motorbike round and round and round, your momentum keeps you up. He reckoned that his speed was such that he would go straight over the top of it, and he did. So I think the answer to you, if it's a long-distance sprint, Navas, if it's tight, maybe Pedro.
1: That's a very, very dangerous prank, and it just reminds me of the start of Lethal Weapon. It doesn't end well for that guy when he hits the blue tarp on top of the swimming pool. (laughs) Uh, Learn to swim. Pedro has a huge game. uh, Just as just as we talked about the Portugal game being perhaps Joao Captavia's best for Spain, I wanted to sort of take a bit more of a sort of long distance look at his Spain career because at club level, despite, despite the fact that he's a, a treble winner for for Barcelona, I think for club level, you'd probably look at him next to David Silva now and say that David Silva has been consistently more um, sort of awe-inspiring at the very, very top of of, of the game. But for Spain, when you put those two guys next to each other, I think it's a bit of a no contest in Pedro's favour. It's really interesting that you timed that. And I've been stunned in recent
0: days to talk to three different elite footballers who are lost in admiration for Pedro and who talk about his football intelligence and the quality of his runs. And for you who managed to watch um, Take the Ball pass the Ball, which I think was on... Um, Sky again recently, as as we record this, I'm not talking about Michael Carrick. Michael Carrick was one of the first opponents to say, you know, in that 2011 final, which is not Spain, and I know you were talking about La Roja, the the damage that was done to us about Vian and Pedro being willing to 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 pin our full back, but also to stretch the pitch wide by staying on the line, irrespective of whether they were going to get the ball or not. That takes patience. I think it takes explaining to viewers how much damage you can do with that tactic. But where Pedro, I think, stands out and maybe begins to equal the comparison with David Silva, who is without doubt, and Pedro would say this too, the more intuitive, creative kind of, uh, you know, Silva, the comparison you made, probably needs to be reoriented. Silva probably is closer to the Iniesta-style player. I would argue Pedro can be a winger, or if you want to make him a second forward in a certain brand of football, you, you certainly could. But what needs to be picked out is Pedro's intelligence of understanding a certain brand of football and how to apply it. And I think that when you are like him, immensely explosive... It's obviously a temptation to rely on your pace. My pace will get me past that man. My pace will get me out of having to read the game well. That's not how he approached his life or his career. He approached it going, "I will I will harness my talents to understanding the system and I will move well such that those who wriggle space in, in where there should be none." My Harry Houdini teammates like Xavi, like Iniesta, like Silva, I'll already I won't be smart enough to react and imagine what's coming next. I'll be showing them where I want things. And I think that's part of what makes him special and you talked about this game being extremely good. Pedro is like, "Well, I don't care who I'm playing against. He's he's doing mischief everywhere. He's offering himself for teammates. They've got an outball in him, either short outballs or going in behind." And he just plays like a, a, a little kid being let out into the garden after a rainy week and going, you beauty, I'm going to make the most of this. And it's, it's, it was fabulous to watch.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Okay, we're going to talk now about the guy who's going to decide this game. Spanish captain Carlos Puyo. Spain have been the dominant team in the first half. Germany have had a few counter punches to keep them honest. Um, the best of the Spanish efforts, or at least one of them, has actually fallen to Puyol. Iniesta does typically majestic work on the right and really fires over a sort of medium-height cross. Comes to Puyol probably a little bit faster to control it perfectly, and his header eventually goes over the bar. At halftime, he takes another step in a sort of strategic conversation that's been brewing for about 24 hours And it connects this huge game for Spain, this World Cup semi-final, their first. Germany's 11th World Cup semi-final, Spain's first. It connects this game with an absolutely landmark game for Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, also the Barcelona, of course, of Pedro, Xavi, (laughs) Iniesta, Gerard Pique, Sergio Busquets. So Graham, can you explain please how this semi-final, like in in real time, how this semi-final is going to connect back to Barcelona six, Real Madrid two? Well, the the, the first thing to admit is that
0: pre-match, obviously, as, as much privileges as, as our accreditation gave us, pre-match in this instance, although it'll change by the final, I don't have access to the dressing room before the game. So it only becomes apparent um, because Spain make a film of the, 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 the pre-match dressing room themselves. It only becomes apparent that when all the briefing has been done and anybody who's been listening to this series knows that Del Bosque's idea is that the the prep work is, is is detailed but it's light. He never wants to overload the players. The job should be done the day before and in the dressing room, sometimes the team talk will be 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds but it won't be long and it won't be very heavy on tactics. When there's time in hand, Reyna is at the t- the whiteboard where the little magnetic pieces have been used to show how Germany will probably line up and how Spain want to play. And Reyna, who's been something of the hidden, now uh, unmasked hero of the Paraguay win, takes Puyol over to the whiteboard and says, look, just talk me through the movement and the idea and the timing of that big-headed goal you scored against uh, Real Madrid which was about a year ago in 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 the terms of when these two are talking in spring 2009 and what they're talking about is the fact that in that 6-2 win that Pep Guardiola sisters his, his new charges um don't think that the minor gap you've got in the league is good enough if you lose this classical rumor it all over, overtake us and win the league you have to get out there and you win and again if people don't remember that it was a fantastic game and I'm pretty sure that I'm certain that Madrid go 1-0 up and the 1-0 goal, I think, is Higuain. And I'm pretty sure that it's the equaliser that comes from Puyol's head. And it's a corner taken from Basona's left. It's Xavi. He launches it up. And Puyol, both by his positioning, timing of his run and his extraordinary leap Scores what becomes a very easy header against Iker Casillas. But cutting to the La Roja dressing room, it's not Iker who's asking him about that, it's Pepirena. Pepirena's like, I want to see how you planned that. What is it that you did? So this is already in their minds um, pre match. And again, cut to half time, I think you'd set us up nicely about it being an interesting, really well balanced first half, and, and listen, we, we don't necessarily need to, go, need to go into it, but there were a couple of pieces of luck for both sides I thought both sides probably committed penalties on one another, and if you only look at the moment that, that disfavours Germany, you can easily say, well, a couple of um, offside decisions that have heavily favoured um, Spain against Portugal and then Paraguay once when Spain score, once when Valdez's goal is ruled out there, there's I think Ramos commits a penalty and, and the referee uh, doesn't see it, doesn't like it, doesn't fancy it, whatever. I think there's also Germany commit a penalty on Spain. So overall, this is not lucky, lucky Spain. But it's balanced, it's tight. It's not nervous, but it's patently clear that when Germany outmuscle Spain and rob the ball, Spain are uncomfortable being turned and having to chase back. That's a fact. And all we can see from our position, because I'm pitch side here, is that as they come off, Puyol's agitated and he's saying something, he's chatting away. And it's in a small group, but it seems to be that he's talking to Chabby. Now, from a distance, if you're calming that or co-commentate at night, you say, oh, Puyol's, he's got some tactical ideas or he wants this changed or you must keep the ball higher up the pit, or, blah, 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 blah. No, it turns out that's not what he's talking about. And if you, you your petition to me was link it back. So what's going to happen is that the next time that Spain get a corner, Chavi's going to take it from the same side of the pitch as against Real Madrid a year earlier in the 6-2 win and there's going to be this massive kind of step ladder leap between two players in red shirts which will win Spain their first ever semi-final and put them through to the greatest show showpiece match of their entire history and and for me at this stage I can only talk mystically in, in Celtic romantic terms I'm not quite sure what happened because at this stage I'm standing at the mouth of the tunnel that leads in and out for medics or emergency access. And I'm standing, I don't know, about 20 metres behind Chavez, he takes the corner. And I'm watching this and thinking, wow, this is mega tight. I, I'd really love to be a TV producer in a World Cup final. <laughs> Come on, Spain. Have, haven't you got something? And At this stage next to me, uh, not an old lady, but a, a lady of advanced age, pops up next to me. I don't see her coming. She's not wearing an accreditation, and in case sometimes I've begun to wonder if i imagine this and Some other some people must be thinking, well, I right, you know, spin us another one. I've gone back on. I've got I've got a snapshot of, from the match footage of me bending down to listen to her, and she seems to say something that makes it noisy. I'm half paying attention to her, half waiting for the corner to be taken, as she goes to me how's the match? And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's going quite well. Spain could just do with a, and, I, as I'm saying, could just do with a, a, a glance up. Javi takes this corner, right footed, but it's got a slight, um, left to right curve, inwards, so that by the time, Puyol, who's what, 5'11", Comprehend. <laughs> out jumps six foot two Gerard Piquet, who only just doesn't get in his way. And Puyol almost seems to use Piquet as somebody to lean on to give him an extra bit of leverage. It's just about, I, I, maybe in my life, I've maybe seen a better header, and I, I might be able to name where. I don't know, but this is perfect. This is perfection because he's got his body square onto the ball, he's got his eyes open. Chavi knows where the ball's going to land. Puyol knows that Chavi could have put it within a millimeter, a millimeter of his forehead. He's just got to arrive on time. So his body position is side on, it's perfect. He's got his neck drawn back. Um, it's as if you're watching a world-class punch in a heavyweight fight just before the fist hits the jaw. And Puyol's header goes at rocket speed. The Neuer's good but it's bouncing back off the the netting given the tautness of the goal nets and bouncing back towards Neuer from inside the net before the German keeper has properly begun to react the ball's going that fast and I, I finish going just all we need is a goal as I look up and this happens and I look down and the little old woman's gone I don't know who she was I don't know what happened there is photographic evidence of it and it's 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 seared on my brain as if it was your little fairy godmother, going like, uh, "You don't know it. I'm asking you about the match, but I know what's about to happen."
1: Okay, listen, we're we're not done. By the way, Carlos Puyol, five foot ten. I just checked. We're not done with this goal just yet. But before we continue, let's hear what the man himself remembers about it.
0: Un momento.
1: A unique moment, not only because of the goal, which was important, but the game as well. It meant qualification for the final and it was probably our best game in that World Cup against a very strong team. In the end, I was lucky enough to score that goal in a move that we had been practising very often in Barcelona. The day before the match, we decided to try it and it worked perfectly. More than the goal itself, I remember that for giving us the chance to advance to the final and for our great performance.
0: I told Xavi that as long as he managed to put the ball between
1: the penalty mark and the D, I was going to be able to get in and score. In the end, everything worked
0: out
1: perfectly. I'm glad you mentioned Gerard Piquet because pre match they've planned it, Reyna's gone through with it on the, on the whiteboard. Half time, he's corralled everybody, primarily Xavi. To make sure that they're gonna replicate this Barcelona set piece. Gerard Piquet, let's be forget, played centre half with Puyol for Barcelona and played in that 6-2 game. Did he score in that 6-2 game? He did, he scored he scored the, the incredible sixth where you know that him and Puyol used to
0: challenge each other. Like if one of them did something and the other couldn't, then you had to pay for dinner or take them out in the town. Or, so when, when Puyol scored ahead or PK raced forward at five-two and and got the got that little rebound where he picks it up, swivels completely round, loses Iker Casillas, slots it into the net, and then kind of lifts his jersey frontwards and does does the sort of the five symbol up because even though it's six-two, the, the five goal thing in the Bernabéu is is deeply significant. So yeah, he scores that day. Yeah.
1: That's right. So, I mean, if anybody should be on board with the plan, it's Gerard Piquet. He clearly hasn't read the memo or he read it at halftime and has subsequently forgotten about the memo because it does look as though... he He's in a great position because he's kind of blocking off the penalty spot and he's doing a number on Sami Kadira, I think. And that should be enough, but he decides to go up for it. And you're right, in the end, it looks as though Puyo um, kind of uses him for leverage. And, you know, it is an incredible header. i It's what we would call in the part of the world where both you and I grew up a complete raker. Xavi's corner. And it's Puyol!
0: And it's the man from the back who has given Spain the lead. Carlos Puyol flying in. And the German defence can only look at each other. One might be enough.
1: It's described in the book by you as the best header you've ever seen. I would like to throw some World Cup headers at you in a game of winner stays on, and we'll see how far Carlos Pio's header can get. Okay, round one: Lechkov versus Germany for Bulgaria in the World Cup quarterfinals, 1994.
0: Oh, ho, 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 ho. I, listen, I was at that World Cup, and I was but I was home by that stage, and I was in a pub in. I was in Tenants in Glasgow's West End on Byers Road watching that. And I wasn't awfully fond of the Germans at that stage. And boy, did I celebrate that goal. So I take your point that the mighty Lechkov was a significant one and it was a
1: beautiful one, but it wasn't better than Puyol's. OK, I have Puyol a, goes through. Have a, have a, have a thought. Are you, are you kidding? Puyol goes through to round two. Round two, Carlos Puyol, Spain, 2010 thousand and ten semi-final versus... Robin van Persie 2014 versus Spain. She now hold on a goddamn minute. I, I was
0: in that I was at that match in Fortaleza. Holland kicked the crap out of uh, Spain that day. And there, there's no way that if David Silva converts the penalty that he's given to make it 2-0. There's no and and everybody goes on and on and on about that goal. And I very good and I think it was Danny Blint's kid, wasn't it, who, who probably Cross from the left wing back area, and and Van Percy's a brilliant interview and a good player and all that stuff. But you can stick that right up your jacksie. That that's provocative to even include that
1: round. Don't like, not happy. You <laughs> go through again and finally Pele, 1970 World Cup final opening goal.
0: <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna to have to think about that one. It's the battle of the 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 peas. Puyol, puyol v Pele. <laughs> um, probably Pele would claim more significance. And if you heard David Coleman's commentary, Pele
1: and 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 he's always gone too soon. Um, two great assists as well. Two two fantastic players on the assists. Uh, You've mentioned Xavi with the free kick, uh, with the corner kick from the left. Who's balling? Is it Tostao? No, Rivellino. Is it Rivellino? Is it? Um, I believe so. That's what David Coleman told me.
0: <laughs> Look, it's a very good goal. It's a World Cup final, but it didn't mean as much to me. So we're going to call it an unresolved uh, draw. Um, and and the two headers that I can say categorically. Johnny Hewitt, eighty-three, Gothenburg against Real Madrid. Goes without saying, but also no, it needed saying. I did, again. I dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, I saw I saw a header that to this day I, st- I still can barely believe, which is which is not Sergio Ramos against um, Courtois in ninety in uh, twenty fourteen in Lisbon. You know, one of the reasons that poor old we Mata arrived at 2012, so knackered was the, the 2012 final between extra time final between Chelsea and Bayern Munich, where poor old Tommy Muller comes off second best again, but um, Drogba's header from that corner, uh, and that corner I think was taken by Mata uh, where Lampard does the PK and Lampard's in a way, but the, the angle that Drogba heads it at, the power with which it beats hold on, let me think again Poor old Manuel Neuer. Um, I'm not claiming drug by a Spanish, but you know, in the battle of headers, that that I that to me remains, in terms of power, timing, angle, where it goes in the goal frame, and amidst the narrative of that night, I still think that's just about the second best header I've ever seen after we Johnny Hewitts. But I love your poor competition. Thanks very much. Thanks for playing, as they say in Glasgow.
1: I liked it too. Okay, I have one more question um, about this game before we wrap things up for today. And that is about the scoreline here because we're not done with 1-0 Spain, but it has become a theme. And, you know, you saw them at all three of these tournaments. And I just wanted to know, when they, when they took the lead in a game, did you notice any change in system or was it just that their style of controlling games kind of killed an opponent that, that then needed to get the ball? What do you think it was about Spain when they hit the front that made them so unbeatable? Wow.
0: I don't believe that they used possession to kill games. And I believe that in all of the 1-0 games except Paraguay when the goal comes so late, the the brilliance of their use of possession is that it's got two functions. It continues to stretch teams and open them up and present chances so for example there's a, a really good chance where um, Pedro has broken through in the 81st minute Germany are chasing the game a little bit but it's, it's it's not exactly a breakaway but Pedro breaks through and should square to Torres doesn't, keeps keeps going I think Arnie Friedrich has a little tap-in of a challenge, Pedro loses his way it's a certain goal if he squares it to Torres he doesn't, Torres is mad at him forgives him but one of the things that this philosophy about how to keep the ball and what to do with it is that it keeps the other team completely um, aware that they can be scored against again. They are not in an, they're not playing in an Alamo situation at one nil with a team in red or team in blue. as Spain changed their kits. Is is camped in? But but secondly, that retention of the ball means that very often. The teams that are chasing are both dispirited and tired. I, I've seen it over and over again that if, if, if a team is playing this system and it's a lesser opponent, then in the last 15 or 20 minutes, they'll be, they'll be knackered. Now, that wasn't really the case with Portugal or Paraguay or Germany, but it will make you more desperate. It will make you treat the scraps of possession you get with probably a little bit more hurried attitude, maybe snatching at things. And I think it utterly changes your mindset. The level of quality and entertainment for me in the matches was was 10 out of 10 because I was there, because there was the atmosphere, because I had a dog in the fight, because the technique was beautiful, because of this you saw characteristics of what you'd seen in training being dealt out to opponents in games. You saw them overcoming circumstances. You saw them scoring... All manner of different kinds of goals, and 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 just saying we will not be beaten by you, we will we'll not be overcome. But if you tuned in wanting a four-two or a or a three-two or a five-three, you weren't going to get that. Not because of Spain's fault, but because the teams against them they wanted to suffocate them and slow them down and bore them. What we've tried to describe was a very special goal, really well thought out, really well constructed a leap like Puyol's never made before or since in his life, including the 6-2. So it took a lot to, to to shake Germany off because they did go after them. And Spain were given room to play. They enjoyed this game. And I don't think they ever got really nervous. And, and But were they good enough to use that space and go 2-0, 3-0? Well, had Pedro made the right decision in square to Torres, then they would have been. And there are a number of moments from Iniesta and from Xabi Alonso where another goal is threatened. I think if you look man for man, Neil, genuinely, at those 11s you read out and the changes, I think there's more skill and technique in the Spain side. Yogi Lowe's misfortune was that he had slightly few players of brilliance. A lot of diligent footballers. Like, no way, for a closest record, no way would you call him, like, an absolutely unbelievably talented striker. Brilliant positioning, brilliant diligence in his career, an outrageous leap. Podolsky wasn't world-class. If you look at... um, Boateng then was an athlete. He was younger. But has he proven to be an outright world-class footballer? I'm not so sure. I think the same can be argued of Kadira, of Gomez... Of Janssen, of Trokowski. Trokowski, how he got in that side, I was a little bit surprised. Um, so if you'd given Yogi Lowe that Spain group, might he have won the tournament as Spain's coach? Yeah, I think he might.
1: If you wanted your three two, you should have been at the other semi-final. Holland will be Spain's opponents after they beat Uruguay three two. Game that featured an absolute belter from Giovan Van Bronckhorst, possibly goal of the tournament. But it's here that we'll end it. It's in a post-match press conference. And, you know, you hear a lot of losing coaches say a lot of vanilla stuff to get out of that little room at a very difficult moment in their professional lives. But not this time. Graham, you were there. And can you tell us what um, the losing coach here I had to say. Well, I've got a, I've
0: got an ace up my sleeve because I'm not stopping there. I'm going to take you into the dressing room too because it was very, very, very funny indeed. This wasn't vanilla. This was Hot Sauce from Joachim Lowe. He said, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to win the ball back if you lose it to Spain. Yes, they are definitely the best team in the world and they're going to win this tournament. In 2008, They won the European Championship in a spectacular way. Totally convincing. But in the last couple of years, they've involved, introduced some changes, and they now play as if they were on automatic. This team has a unique ability to dominate you and to control you. It's a marvellous team. These guys are the masters of football. If you are beaten in a good contest and you admire the victors and you're able to speak like he did, then I think you should. And I liked it. And after the press conference, after that is, you know, is happening, I think Joggy Lowe speaks first and then Derboski speaks. So Derboski is kind of out of the way a little bit. And what happens is that um, the Queen of Spain, uh, Sofia, Goes down to join Plácido Domingo, who's in the dressing room already, adapting the tune y "¡Viva España" to not "España, por favor," but "España campeón." He's singing to the to the assembled players, and I I'm not sure they're all that bothered. There's some old guy singing, and it's a nice voice, and blah blah blah. But they don't always feel that y "¡Viva España" is their number one tune, so they're spread all over the dressing room. When suddenly. The, the Secret Service guys open the dressing room door, take a little check that nobody's got nothing on, and in walks the Queen. And she's kind of not completely chaperoned because this is a spontaneous visit. So as she comes into the big dressing room in, in Durban, she, she, she mistakenly heads for the showers. She's shuffled away from the showers, down a little corridor, and then turns round a corner where she sort of comes face to face uh, with, with Spain. The, the guys are there, in, some of them in shorts and socks, some of them in a top and a towel, some of them only in a towel. But all of them over there, bar one. And she's not got a PR man or woman with her. She's just queenie. They've not got Del Bosque to step in and go, oh, well, your majesty. Here. So there's a kind of short, shocked silence. As she realises that what you find in a winning dressing room is half-naked men. You've got a short... Shocked silence from the players are like, hold on a second, that's the queen. Where'd she come from now? And short of anything else to do and not quite sure about what the the protocol is, the players do nothing typically. And the queen just stands there and sort of starts clapping them. It's really quite good because she's standing there, this petite 50-something-year-old. So, like, they don't know what to do, so they start clapping back. And Joanne Captavila, who is possibly my favourite player in this squad. in the little corner, is overcome with excitement and he kind of does a little stamping run, stamping his feet running on the spot in the corner as if to say, oh, this is brilliant, this is absolutely brilliant. And she sort of then goes, all oh, right, villas broken the ice and she sort of wanders around introducing herself to players as Carlos Puyol, unaware of what's been going on, comes out of the showers, wrapped only in a towel, turns the corner and finds his teammates hobnobbing with the Queen. And he's, like, absolutely kind of st- short in embarrassment. The Queen had been about to make a speech. Pui always kind of barged in and, in theory, broken protocol. And he's standing there, lost, doesn't know whether to push past her, clutching his towel desperately make sure it doesn't fall off him. And dressing rooms being what they are, the, the team kind of round on him for for spoiling the moment. And they're like, Pui, 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 Pui. And they're, they're mocking him and chanting his name. And the Queen's having a laugh. And I just found it as funny as you like. Absolutely brilliant. And they're not just in the final, Neil. This lot are actually enjoying themselves.
1: Well, it's been a very Carlos Pio kind of an episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I certainly did. Graham, shop shop. Shabalala all the way to the final, baby. The Big Interview with Graham Hunter is produced by Backpage. If you're enjoying Graham's tales from the 2010 World Cup, may I recommend to you the audiobook Spain, the inside story of La Roja's historic treble. That's Graham's book on all three of Spain's tournament wins from 08 to 2012. There's over 16 hours of content, including profiles of the two coaches who took them there, detailed diaries from all three tournaments, and a breakdown of the systems that produced a golden era for Spain. And it's all read by Graham. Find out more about the audiobook of Spain, the inside story of La Rocha's historic treble at backpagepress.co.uk forward slash books forward slash Spain.